Thank you, Caroline. If you've got your Bible, haven't opened it up yet, open it up to John chapter 1. We're going to walk through the text together. Before we do, let's pray. Help us to see, God, what's in your word. Thank you for it. There's so much seeing that happens in this chapter among the disciples, things that Jesus wants them to, dis- to see, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see, to see what's really there, to see the glory that is there, to see your glory. That's what we need. Help us to see things in their right proportion, that we would see great things as great things and the greatest things as the greatest things that our affections would line up with what is true. Help us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, that you have sent the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, to help us. Would you do it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing most of you have seen the Dubai skyline. Most of you have been through Dubai. The skyline just means when you're from a distance and you're looking out at the city, you can see all the towers, and it's amazing. It's a famous skyline. They've got famous buildings, Burj Al Arab, that's the sailboat, Emirates Towers, the frame, the tallest tower in the world, Burj Khalifa. So imagine you had a friend who flew into town, never been to the UAE before. They fly into Dubai, they visit there for a couple days, then they drive down to Aline, and you're talking with them, and you're like... Did you see the skyline? Amazing. They're like, oh yeah, it was incredible. The Dusit Thani building? The Fairmont Hotel? And you're like, what about the Burj Khalifa? And they say, well, what's that? Like, the tallest tower in the world. Do you see that? And they say, no. I mean, the Fairmont was beautiful, but I don't know what you're talking about. You could legitimately question, did you fly into Dubai? I mean, are we talking about the same skyline? Maybe you saw buildings that were really there, the Dusit Thani building, but you missed the tallest tower in the world. You missed the skyline, even though you thought you saw it. You can see true things about Jesus, true things about Jesus, and miss the most important things about him. You could could run a, a quiz, a test, most non-believers would be able to get some right answers about who Jesus is. They could say true things about him, but until they see the most glorious things about Jesus as true, they can't be saved. If you miss the heights, you miss the whole thing. Here in our passage, the disciples see great things in Jesus. I mean, this is chapter one, and we're going to see the disciples say some amazing things right when they meet him. But despite the great things they see, they don't see the greatest things about him. And Jesus is going to tell us the greater things of who he is. He's going to tell us a great thing in particular. So the way we're just going to walk through this text is we're going to start by looking at the things that disciples see in Jesus. So we'll just walk through, list them out. Then we're going to look at the greater thing that he wants them to see. And finally, we're going to look at the comparison between what they see and what Jesus wants them to see. I think that's the highlight of this passage. 
So let's start with what the disciples see in Jesus as we walk through the text. There's verses 35 through 36. So the next day, this is Luke preached last week, John the Baptist. This is the next day. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So that's the first thing we see. Last week, John the Baptist already said this. He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sonny read from Exodus where a lamb is slaughtered so that the people of Israel can live. And John the Baptist is saying, that guy is paying for sins. That's what Jesus is doing. He's a sacrifice. Like a lamb, Jesus has come to be slaughtered on an altar. That's why I came. But the disciples don't fully understand. We're going to see that just as we walk through the rest of the book. They don't fully understand what John the Baptist means, but they know he's the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard John the Baptist say this, and they followed Jesus. This is a great move. No matter who you're following, when Jesus shows up, you start following him. Great move on the part of these disciples. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. It's about 4 p.m. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. Look at what Andrew already knows about Jesus in chapter 1, that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. He tells Peter to come see him. Now, Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They're both referring to the promised king that Israel was hoping would come and reestablish the kingdom, would rescue them. So already, the disciples know that Jesus is king. That's pretty good. Chapter 1, does that mean they know Jesus in a way that will save them? Not necessarily. Many people will believe that Jesus is the king along this journey through John. They will believe and then they will leave because he's not the kind of king they want him to be. Just realize that. Someone confessing Jesus is the king doesn't mean they know him as the king that he is. We do not make up a king on our own terms and receive Jesus that way. We let Jesus tell us what kind of king he is, and we receive him as king on those terms. So it doesn't necessarily mean they know who he is because they can confess he's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God, so we've seen so far. He's the Messiah or Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 43. 
the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So again, an amazing statement is made about who Jesus is from the start. Philip says, Jesus is the one whom Moses in the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and also the prophets wrote. So Philip's saying, this is the guy from the beginning that God has promised is going to fix everything. It's him. What an amazing statement. When Nathaniel gets caught up in the fact that Jesus is from Nazareth, we know he's not really from Nazareth. He's from Bethlehem. He moved to Nazareth. But Nazareth was a village, and no one important was from Nazareth or was supposed to come from Nazareth. So Philip says, come, see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I don't think that Jesus is being sarcastic here. I think he's quoting Psalm 32, 2, which says, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. I think Jesus is looking at this guy and he's saying, This is a sincere man. This man is sincere towards God. Nathaniel, verse 48, said to him, How do you know me? This would be a weird thing, wouldn't it? If someone sees you, you've never seen them before, and they say, ah, I know you, you're a good guy. You'd say, wait, do we know each other? I don't think we've met. How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, verse 48, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. A lot of people speculate he was sinning or he had a revelation from God, or he was praying. We don't know. And honestly, John, the writer of this gospel, doesn't care that we know. All that we know is that Nathaniel is stunned. Nathaniel is thinking, wait a second. I just asked this guy how he knows me, and then he gave me a piece of information about me that nobody should know. He's stunned. And so, he says in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Son of God, that can be a name for the King of Israel. So, Nathaniel doesn't know what we know, because we started at the beginning of John, which is that Jesus is the Son of God and has been from all eternity. When he says, you're the son of God, he clarifies in the next sentence what he means by that. He means, you are the king of Israel. What an amazing thing for someone to say to Jesus the first time they meet him. So here's what we have so far. Jesus is identified as the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God. John the Baptist says he's the lamb of God. He's the king that Moses and the prophets promised. These are amazing things. 
Incredible things that people know about Jesus from the start, but Jesus wants them to see more. So let's look at the greater thing Jesus wants them to see. Verse 50, Jesus answered Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now we're going to come back to that comparison. The word greater is a comparison word. We're going to come back to it. Verse 51, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I'm like a ladder or a staircase to heaven. Now, Jesus is referencing another story in the Old Testament. This is from Genesis 28. So in Genesis 28... Esau wants to kill his brother Jacob, and so Jacob runs off. He doesn't want to get killed by his brother. He runs off into the wilderness, and while he's there, he has no place to lay his head. He grabs a stone, and he goes to sleep. This is what it says. This is Genesis 28, verses 11 through 17. Follow along with me if you can. Jacob came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Okay, And God is going to promise Jacob then. He's going to promise that he and his family will be blessed in the land of Canaan and that they will be a blessing to the whole world. And then verse 16 says this, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So God is telling Jacob in his dream that this place and Jacob's people are going to be the place where the world has access to God. That's what he's telling him. When Jesus takes this image up, he's not saying that angels are literally going to climb up and down his giant body. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Jacob, saw a vision of the place where people could access God, I am that place. That's what he's saying. I am the gateway to God. I am the staircase to God, the ladder. I am the way. That's what Jesus is claiming here. He's saying what we already saw in verse 18. Remember verse 18 of chapter 1? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring us to God. Not because there's a physical distance between us and God. It's not a physical distance. We don't need a really big ladder to get to God. You're not closer to God if you're in a rocket ship 
than if you're standing on the ground. That's not our problem. It's not physical distance. It's relational distance. That's our problem. We have massive relational distance from God. He is what we were made for. He's the fountain of life where all good and satisfaction comes from. But you and I are sinners. We're sinners. We've refused to follow him and enjoy him, and so we are separated from him. That's the distance. We are separated relationally from God because of our sin. He's so holy. And unless something changes, we will be cut off from him forever in punishment. That's the distance. Jesus, the Lamb of God, reconciles us to him by dying on the cross. That's what he's doing. That relational distance because of the guilt that we have incurred because of our sin, Jesus pays for it. And he closes the relational distance because now you and I can be forgiven because payment was made. If you trust him. If you trust him. Jesus will bring you to God because the payment in full was made on the cross. That's what he's doing if you trust him. That's one way that Jesus brings us to God. That's how he's like a ladder to God, by paying for our sins and closing that relational distance. But he's also like a ladder to God because if you trust him now, In this life, you have access to God. You can have access to God. Do you know you can pray to God and he will hear you if you are in Jesus Christ? The God Almighty of the universe will receive your prayers because of what Jesus has done. And you can experience fellowship with God in this life. You can really know it. Jesus is like a ladder in that way. But he's also like a ladder staircase to God because when you die or Jesus returns, what he will do for those who trust in him, who are forgiven by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, what he will do for you is he will bring you into the full presence of God. Any fellowship that you might know with God now in this life is real but it's not going to be the full thing. Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to bring us into the presence of God where you and I can know the fountain of life and joy unhindered, unhindered by sin, unhindered by pain, unhindered by a limited amount of time. We can know God. This is the great treasure that Jesus brings us. Forgiveness is not the great treasure. It's a step along the way. We need it so that we can get the greatest treasure, which is God himself. Now, we could stop right there, and that would be okay for this sermon. 
It would be okay to stop there and say, Jesus brings us to God. What a treasure. But we would miss the comparison. That's the highlight of this passage, I think, is that Jesus is making a comparison between what Nathaniel says and what he says. Verse 48 again. Jesus answered Nathaniel, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Why does Jesus respond in this way? You would think that if someone meets Jesus for the first time and says, you're the king of Israel, he'd say, you believe? That was easy. All right, come on. But he doesn't do that. There's a hint of a gentle rebuke here. It's as if Jesus is saying, that's all it takes for you to believe that I'm the Messiah? that I knew a little secret information about you? Your expectations for what the Messiah is going to do must be way too low if you think that having a little bit of secret knowledge is sufficient for the kind of work that the Messiah really is going to do. This would be like if you had the greatest doctor in the world as your personal doctor which may be the case. We've got you know, doctors in here. If your doctor, your personal family medicine doctor was the greatest doctor in the entire world, you didn't know it. Nobody knew it. He was just your personal family doctor. And in all his spare time, which doctors have a lot of, right? He's researching in his basement. This guy is going to come up with a cure for cancer. He's not just going to cure one person's cancer. He's going to cure all cancer. This guy is the greatest doctor that will ever be. You don't know it. Nobody knows it. He's still got his office hours. You're going in to see him, get a checkup. He's taking your blood pressure. And he goes, 130 over 90. It's a little high. And you go, oh, my gosh. You are the greatest doctor <laughs> in the world. He would probably respond to you by saying, Really? That's why you think I'm the greatest doctor in the world, because I could check your blood pressure? Your idea of what makes the greatest doctor in the world, the greatest doctor in the world, is way too low. It's not even close to what this guy is going to do. Get into the disciples' minds here. They think that a king is going to come who's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, by conquering his enemies. That would require some special powers, right? Maybe this guy can see the future. That would come in really handy before a battle, wouldn't it? Maybe this guy's super strong, so it's difficult to defeat him. That would come in handy if you were the king of Israel. He has special knowledge. That's the kind of thing Nathaniel's thinking. This guy's got special knowledge. Yeah, this is going to be the king who's going to reestablish Israel and put us on the map. And Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, if having a little special knowledge is all you think it's going to take for the Messiah to do what he's going to do, the bar is way too low. It's way too low. 
you think I'm here to put Israel on the map, but I am here to bring you to God. That's the great thing that Jesus is doing. And what he wants for Nathaniel is for Nathaniel to see not just that it is a great thing that he does, but that compared with the other things Nathaniel thinks he's going to do, it's the greatest thing. And that's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to know that the work he does to bring you to God is not just one of many things he does, but it is the great thing he came to do for you and for me. Do you see the greatest things as the greatest things? It's really important for our health, our spiritual health. You could pass a test and say, what all does Jesus do for you? He provides for you, does these things, he brings you to God. That doesn't mean your spirit's healthy. It's when you see the greatest things as the greatest things and love them as the greatest things that we know life. So here's what I mean. Jesus does incredibly kind things for us, doesn't he? He helps us, he provides for us. In every way. I mean, many of you have amazing stories. You didn't have a job. You didn't have a visa. You didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. And God provided it for you through Jesus. Those are incredibly kind things that he really does. And when he does them, we should really give thanks to him for it. Everything we've received, every meal, every breath is a gift. But if the best you've seen is that Jesus helps you get your visa you haven't seen the skyline yet. You've seen the Fairmont, but you haven't seen the Burj Khalifa. Some of you have testimonies of God restoring your health, the health of a child, the health of a parent, and you know Jesus did it. That's good. You should thank him for it. But if that's why you follow him, you haven't seen the skyline. You've seen the Fairmont Hotel, but you're not looking at the same skyline that Jesus wants you to. You've missed the tallest tower in the world. He doesn't just want you to know that he brings you to God. He wants you to know it's the great thing he does. I follow you, Jesus, because you give me food, money, pleasure, health. He would say to you, really? That's why you follow me? I mean, I, I do give you food. I do give you any measure of health that you have. But that's why I bring you to God. That's the great treasure. So here's reflection time. Is that what you love most about Jesus? Is that what you love most about him? Do you believe that him bringing you to God is the greatest thing he could ever do for you? the greatest thing that could be done for anyone. That's the burden of this sermon for us. That's the difference be between being a Christian and not being a Christian. If you believe that God is your greatest treasure, your deepest joy, more than health for your kids, more than money, more than any friends, it means you're born again. It means you see reality as it is, that he is the greatest treasure of all.
That's why Jesus came. So just consider these diagnostic questions, like a diagnosis, help you diagnose your own heart. These aren't comprehensive, but they're a help, maybe. What is it that makes you most sad for other people? What makes you most sad about other people? Do you feel worse for them when they're poor and hungry or when they're not reconciled to God? We should feel terrible when people are poor and hungry. We should care as believers for all suffering. But do you see that one is worse than the other? Do you feel worse when someone is abused or when they're not reconciled to God? The things that make us most sad tell us what we care most about. Here's another. Anything, if you knew that you could have it forever, like a great relationship with your kids forever, or great health forever, or some kind of physical pleasure forever, if you could have that thing, would you trade God for it? Would you? Anything. All things. If we put God on one side of the scale and we put anything else on the other side, which weighs more? That tells us what our greatest treasure is. Here's why this is important. There are vast numbers of people who call themselves Christians, but they still see power, money, pleasure, fame, health, family, friendships as their greatest treasures, they just come to Jesus to get those things. That doesn't make you a Christian. Yes, those things are good, but Jesus came so that you would see he's brought you to God even when it costs you those things. And he's the greatest treasure. You were made to see that God is your all. And Jesus brings you to him. So what we want is to believe it. We want to be thinking this way. God, you are our greatest treasure. We want to live this way as though the glory of God, him being honored and us getting to see it, is what we desire more than anything else when we lose anything else or everything else if we have it. Jesus came to do that, not just to secure it, but to reorganize our loves so that we see it. He doesn't want you to see God as one of your treasures. He's the greatest. It's the greatest thing he's done for you. So unbeliever, if you don't call yourself a Christian, you're not sure that you are, go to him and he will bring you to God. He will do it. All you do is trust. You believe. You don't have to roll a big rock up a hill somewhere or pay a bunch of money. You believe and he will bring you to God. And you will know life and joy in the presence of God that nothing else in this world, some of you know it, you know nothing else in this world is getting it. Nothing else in this world, no matter how much I put in there, is touching what I need. What you need is God. And Jesus will bring you to him. Christian, you want to be near God? Jesus gives you access. And you can go one time, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, whenever you want. 
and he will take you to God. And someday when he returns, he will bring us to him fully. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that the great work you do is to bring us to God. Thank you. Help us not to simply know it, but to love it as our greatest treasure because it cannot be taken from us in this life. Family, health, power, pleasure, money can come and they can go. But if we have you, we have not lost our greatest treasure and we would not let go of you for anything less. Oh God, make that true in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that that's what you came to do. You are not a little Messiah. You don't simply make the nations worship you by force. You bring us to God. Who is like you, Jesus? Who is like you? You paid it all, and so we thank you. Help us to believe it. We ask in your precious name. Amen.